Thank you very much. Thank you for bearing with the wires and everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you continue to speak to us through it. Thank you that as we read it, we can hear your voice. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've started our journey through this letter, this letter to uh, this group of people in Corinth, this city uh, in uh, close to Athens, uh, modern-day Greece. And we learned a bit last week about the fact that it's a port um, and that it's quite cosmopolitan. It's a place where lots of people come and go. And uh, it was quite an important place uh, because it's on a very narrow strip of land. And so it controlled the crossing. So either people had to, um, had to go all the way around or they had to pay the Corinthians uh, to go across their little bit of land uh, and get to the other side. So it was important, it was wealthy, it was cosmopolitan. It's a busy place, and uh, that's where Paul spent 18 months uh, preaching, uh, starting with the Jewish people in the synagogue, but also going to the Gentiles and finding that both Jews and Gentiles responded, and the church was born in this city. And uh, it's clearly a church that matters to Paul very much because he writes two long letters to them. Um, and as we'll see, uh, it's a letter that had lots of very simple but difficult problems. We looked last week at the message of the cross and the way that, Jesus, the way that Paul points out that this message, which looks foolish and weak, actually ends up being the wisdom and the power of God. So when people look at the cross and they see a crucified Messiah, a crucified king, they are tempted to say, well, this, this is ridiculous. How can this be true? How can this be a sign of God's wisdom? And how can it be a sign of God's strength? Surely at this moment of humiliation and defeat, all these ideas of, of, of strength and power and wisdom are devastated. But Paul makes clear that this is an example of the wisdom and the power of God. It's as it were, he's explaining that to defeat evil and overcome it decisively, evil cannot simply be beaten into submission it has to rather be disarmed and ultimately transformed. And this is what the cross does. Yes, of course, Jesus defeats evil and sin. He defeats the powers of darkness. But he also shows how this victory will be won. Not through human power or strength, but by sacrifice and the all-conquering power of love. And when you begin to think about it, you begin to see the wisdom of it, don't you? If you or I have an enemy, heaven forbid, but if we did, and we beat them, and we defeat them, and we subdue them, 
they are still your enemy. And sooner or later, they will rise up and strike you back. But if you offer them compassion, forgiveness, and even love, then you open up a new possibility that they cease to be your enemy and become your companion, your friend, your brother or your sister. And the transformation is complete, <coughs> that the enemy becomes your friend. And this is the power of the cross. While we were still sinners, Jesus dies for us, not in order to beat us into submission, but to draw us back to himself, to show us that there is a better way, to show us that we can be his people. This is the deep power and wisdom and wonder of the cross, that it makes those who were enemies into friends. It offers not the submission of evil, but the forgiveness of evil, and therefore transforms it. And it's hard to see power and strength this way, isn't it? So many people, and if we're honest, so often us, we are locked into the old ways of thinking. We see power and strength only as the ability to make other people do what we want them to do, to do to subdue them, to get them to do what you want, to force your will on others. This is the power of the more powerful one, the power of the empire, the power of one who says, you will do this. And to these people and to this way of thinking, the cross looks foolish and weak. But ultimately, that way of thinking is always doomed. We know that empires rise and fall, that those who look powerful and who seek to impose their will on others can only do so for a time. Even if that time is centuries, they can only do it for a time. The power of the cross is that it reaches out in forgiveness and compassion and transformation and makes us who were enemies into the friends of God. And therefore, through us, there is the opportunity for others to also be transformed. This is the power and the mystery and the wonder of the self-giving love of Jesus. That though he had equality with God, he did not consider it something to be grasped, but set it aside, being found in human form, revealed, became a servant, and even sacrificed unto death. This is God's mysterious power. It looks weak, it looks foolish, but when you begin to grasp, you will see that this is the wisest and the most powerful power because it has the power to transform. And actually, the Lord God has always been in the business of frustrating the so-called wise and intelligent. 
It's almost as if the cross comes as the culmination of a long period of, G- of, the, of the Lord God doing this. He seems to delight in taking what is weak and little, foolish, and saying, look, I'm going to do great things through this. Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to make you the beginning of a great nation. Moses, the murderer, the one who runs away, I'm going to make you the one who leads my people into freedom. David, the shepherd boy, who sins so badly, and yet the Lord says, you will be the one from whom there will always be a descendant. Esther, that we read about and enjoyed so much, this young girl, powerless, utterly powerless, in the midst of, an, of, a, of a place where, where the Jews were deeply threatened. And yet God uses her to do incredible things. You see, the Lord delights in taking what looks weak and foolish and using those things and those people to show the world how wise and powerful he is. It happens right the way through scripture and it happens supremely in the cross. And you know what? Now he's going to do that with his new people, the new community, the church, which is based on this incredible message. This new community will be an expression of the way that God works, turning things upside down, starting with the weak and the foolish, and using those people to show how wise and powerful the Lord God is. And this is where these words from 1 Corinthians are so powerful and so beautiful. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In other words, it is the very choice of the people God is going to use to build his new community, which is an expression of the way that he works. If you stop and you think about it for a moment, it's incredible, isn't it? If you were going to start a new community, if you were going to start a community through whom you were going to change the world, who would you start with? Surely you'd start with the brightest and the best, the cleverest, the the ones who had the most skills, perhaps the richest, perhaps those who had the most time. But that is not how God does it because that's not how he's done it through scripture and that's supremely not how he does it through the cross it is by choosing the weak and the foolish of the world that he will proclaim to the world who he is he is the topsy-turvy God the one who takes the people and the things which look incredibly unpromising and says, now watch, watch what I will do. And this church 
and the other churches that we read about in the New Testament held the faith and they proclaimed the faith. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still reading about it, still reading this good news, still marveling at what God has done. This is the way God works. And if that's the way God works then, it seems perfectly reasonable to think that that's how God is going to work now. He's going to take a strange group of people and he's going to put them together and he's going to say to the world, look, look at this group of people. These are the people through whom I will demonstrate my love and my power and my wisdom. So we become carriers of this message. We become carriers of this embodiment of how God works. That he delights to take what is weak and foolish and to say, look, these are the people who reveal my love, who reveal who I am. And God seems to delight in bringing together different sorts of people. We know from other parts of Paul's letters that the church was, was, was drawn from uh, different parts of the ancient world. That it was drawn together from people who represented the major divisions of the ancient world. Read, remember these verses from the letter to the Galatians. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we might pass over those divisions and think, oh yes, yes, we know what he means. These were deep and profound divisions. The Jews had been holding the covenant, holding the promises of God for ages and ages, for centuries, for centuries. The Gentiles had not. And yet together they were to be made equal in this new kingdom. Slave and free. Male and female. In a, word, in a world where women had as much power as the man in the house allowed them to have. Which might be a lot, it might be little, it might be none at all. These divisions are swept away in this new community. Where different people find that they are one in Christ. And something so profound and so revolutionary began that I think the whole world ultimately was changed. Because here, in this moment, in this place, people found that those divisions melted away and they had the opportunity to stand equal together looking at the cross the most revolutionary message there has ever been. You are one in Christ.
Do you know, there's a, there's a, a quote I quite like uh, from a, of an American speaker. Um, and uh, this American speaker said these words. She said, this is a, a modern quote, she said, the only good reason for going to church is to meet people you don't agree with. Have a think about that. The only good reason for going to church is to meet people you don't agree with. Now, immediately someone says that. I can feel my back arching. Okay, I can feel it. There's lots of good reasons for going to church. Thank you very much. Praise and worship, praying for the world, reading God's word, encouraging one another, teaching young people. There's loads of good reasons for going to church. I think she's being deliberately provocative. Okay? But I think she's also onto something. Where else, then and now, do people with genuinely different views meet each other as equals? Where else do people who may disagree on lots of other things find that they are one in Christ? Where else are people who might have very different experiences, very different lived daily lives, where else are they put together and they're told, go for it, get on with one another, love each other. I think if all of us are honest, most of the time we gravitate towards people who are like us. Birds of a feather flock together. There is that sense, isn't there? It's easier. It's more natural. There's a whole set of things you don't have to do if you're with people who are like you. The wonder of the church is that we are not free to do that. The wonder of the church is that we are drawn together, pushed together, confronted by one another and to find a unity in Christ which is profound and enriching and challenging and wonderful and which never ends in, 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 in making us rethink who we are and how we're being transformed into the image of Christ. It is one of the best bits about being in Spark Hill that you meet people who are different, different to you, who've had all kinds of experiences that you have not had. And here in St. Christopher's, this is one of our opportunities, one of our privileges, to meet people who are different, to meet people who might disagree with us, and to hear the voice of God through them. And you know what? It's good for us, but it is also the hope of the world. Because there are so many places where people do not do that. And very few places where they do. As I say, people have a tendency to go towards their bunkers. I don't know if you remember the, the Brexit debate are you a leave or are you a remain? Some people I know, lovely, lovely people, lost friends. Friends they'd had for decades because they were assuming that they, th that they thought one thing 
and then they stumbled in a conversation and found that they were the other. And they couldn't, they couldn't cope with it. And friendships that had taken decades to form just dissolved almost overnight. This place, this experience for the Corinthians, but also for us, is an opportunity to say our belonging to Christ is so profound, so deep, so, so primary, that these other things are second to it. So I am not free to say to you, you think that, therefore I will have nothing further to do with you. When people say that, it's horrible. It's horrible. You are my brother or my sister in Christ. And even if I profoundly disagree with what you say, you are still my brother or sister in Christ. And I am called to love you. And you are called to love me. And together we are called to be the church. Just as the Corinthians were. Just as we are today to learn and to see Christ in one another and to proclaim to the world that it is possible not just to tolerate, not even to respect, but actually to love people you don't agree with because of what Jesus has done. There's a, a quote here from, from J. John, who some people I'm sure will know, he's a He's a, an evangelist in the Church of England. He, he says these words. He says, The harsh mood of our world is one in which you put yourself first, shut down opposing views, and, if necessary, engage in preemptive public revenge. Sadly, I sense this ugly, shrill mood creeping into the church. Disputes are unavoidable where truth matters, and they have occurred throughout the history of Christianity, yet they must be conducted with truth and grace and concluded with forgiveness. I long for more grace and charm in what we do in the church and in how we present ourselves to the world. A failure to show even a modest level of love <coughs> is a denial of who we are in Christ. So, the foolishness of the cross, it is actually incredibly powerful and incredibly wise because it doesn't subdue enemies, it transforms them by inviting them to become friends inviting them to, prof to profound forgiveness and love. The foolishness of the cross produces a community that is based not on power, but on love and compassion and forgiveness. A community where Christ is present and a community which offers hope to the world. A foolish and weak message produces a foolish and weak community. And God's wisdom and power does both things. Amen.
Hot Chocolate Cafe. Thank you ever so much for listening. So 